Two balls, one strike. And a shot towards center. That ball is deep. Hit the wall. It's a line drive home run. Number 20 for Ronald Acuna Jr. And the Braves, behind Acuna's bat, have taken the lead. And the crowd giving him the business. And he says, bring it on. Hey now, welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast. My name is Steve Bennett, and I am blessed to be joined today by Paula Bennett. Paula Bennett, come here now. (laughs) (laughs) It is season 11, episode 12 of the Sportscasters. It is June 22nd, 2021. And I graduated. And Paula graduated from pre-K today. Where are you going next year now? Kindergarten. Pre-K's done and kindergarten's next. And what happened this weekend? This weekend. What, what did we do this weekend? It was your what? Birthday. Yeah, and what do we have at the house? Unicorns. Unicorns. A unicorn birthday party? Mm-hmm. Did you have so much fun? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I got 100 million presents. You got 100 million presents? <laughs> what were your best presents? Mommy and Daddy's. What did we get you? <laughs> It's like um, a car and a camper and a picnic table and, and a lot. <laughs> yeah. You were spoiled this year, huh? Ah. Uh, huh. That was incredible. So tell me more about the graduation real quick. We were in the school winding up getting ripped off buddy. And we were walking down. Mm-hmm. And then. We graduated. We were standing in the line. Yeah. Like this. And then we. You sing a song? Yeah. Yeah. No, we did. And then they called your name, right? They're like, Bala Bennett has graduated. And then everyone, woo! No, no? they said, no, they didn't graduate. Oh. We, they said, Paula Bennett. And then we graduated. Oh, and then they threw the, the, the hats in the air? Yeah. Yeah. And what song do we learn for the end of school? Schools out for summer. <laughs> All right. If people want to hear more from you, what podcast are you usually on? The Twenty Four Inch Podcast. And who else? Who who hosts that show? Daddy. And who else? Dave Rollins. <laughs> okay. So Dave Rollins, Daddy, and Paula are on the Twenty Four Inch Podcast. Uh-huh. And what do you do on it? Emails. You read emails. What else? Do you pick matches? Yes. Yeah. If Vince McMahon calls, give give the listeners of the Sportscasters one match. Uh, Hulk Hogan versus the Macho Man. Oh, that'd be a good one. The Mega Powers are gonna explode. Explode. All right, honey. Thank you. Thank you for checking in with my audience. You're welcome. Say goodbye. All right, she's off to uh, play with the iPad. Because I am tired. Because she is tired from her busy week. 
Uh, again, welcome to the Sportscasters, Season 11, Episode 12. Great show today. John Wertheim. L. John Wertheim, the author of Glory Days, The Summer of 1984, and The 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever, will be on the podcast today. The first time he appears on the podcast since he... Uh, wrote an article about me for sportsillustrated.com, so we'll talk to him about that. And then Glory Days. And also, since he's such a tennis guy, i got to ask him about what's going on with the tennis player who won't talk to the media and what's going on with that. So he'll fill us in on that. Also on the show today, I'm really excited about this guest. He wrote a book called Difficult Men, one of my favorite books in the history of the book club. It came out in 2013, and we had a great interview and I sent him Chevette's sauce, which is a chicken marinade that comes from Buffalo. And he we text occasionally. He's a great dude. And he writes features for GQ. He covers food. And he's really an awesome guy. And, man, I go out to him all the time and try to get him on the show. And he, he, I can never talk him into it. But because of the article and the 10-year anniversary, he's going to come back today. And we'll talk to him after the book club. And I can't wait. Uh, And also, before we get to that, I got to mention, last week's episode has caused a stir, for sure. I've gotten many, many texts and DMs and tweets and emails from people about Jay Mariotti's appearance on the podcast. Certainly uh, one of the most memorable interviews in the history of the sportscasters, and um, I am just thrilled that he did it. Um, You know, there's a couple people out there, I guess, who feel a certain way about him. And decided to take it out on me um, for having him on. But I don't see any reason not to have him on and tell his story. Um, And I was glad to do that. And I'm going to have him back sometime. And and hopefully we'll just talk sports that time. Uh, Because that's, generally speaking, more fun. But uh, check that episode out. It's on the feed. Um, Episode 11, Jay Mariotti. And also... Uh, Dave Jordan was on that to talk about his Dave Parker book, which also got a great response. It's a great book, so I'm not surprised it did. But uh, big show today, John Wertheim, one of the all-time favorite guests. Actually, I had a uh, a listener reach out to me, Jim Armstrong, who I wanted to say hello to, and he wrote me a note about the Mariotti interview. But whenever anyone does that, I always try to just, pick their brain and see what they like. And I asked him who his favorite guests were. And he said, I always enjoy Perlman, Deich, Passan, Wertheim, Aaron Schatz, and guests that don't do many other podcasts. Um, So just for you, Jim, as soon as I got that email, I called Wertheim. I was like, I need you, Jim, or John. (laughs) Jim wants you. I need you. Um, So we're going to go to that in a second. So we'll take a break. We'll come back with... uh, Oh, and thanks again to Jim Armstrong. I appreciate it. And please email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. I've never not responded to uh, someone who took out the time to email me. Uh, so don't be afraid to do that. I love interacting with the listeners. So we'll take a break. We'll come back with John Wertheim. Then we'll do the book club update, which is thinning out for the summer. And then after that, we are going to interview Brett Martin, who returns for the first time since 2013. I'm excited about that, and then we will do either one last thing or the Frank DeFord spot. I haven't decided yet, Uh, but that's where we're at. So take a break. We'll be right back.
our first guest today is from Indiana and is a graduate of Yale University. He is Sportscasters Royalty, having appeared on the show almost as much as anyone else in the top three uh, with the likes of Lee Jenkins and Jeff Perlman. And he's the man who authored not only the book Glory Days, which we're going to talk about today, but also the article about the sportscasters. That's been one of the just best experiences of my life. So a warm sportscasters welcome to our dear friend, John Wertheim. Mr. Wertheim, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? So people are in my head. I'm afraid I've been saying your name wrong for 10 years because I've always said that your no, name is... No such thing. I've always said your name is John Wertheim, and ever since the article came out, people are like, I can't believe John Wertheim wrote about you. And, like, I, I have to struggle to even say it like that. that is, that's not right, is it? Wertheim? Are you John Wertheim? I, I, I think you got it, but I'm, you know, I'm not, we're not, we're not picky like that. <laughs> um, I think, I, I think you got it, but uh, wide, wide birth here. We're like, we're like Chris Russo, wide, wide birth on the name. Right, good job by you. Good job by you, John. Good job. Uh, there you go. What do you think the two most talked about things from the article are? And when people talk to me, you know, they call me, they from reach the people, out. From, from the, uh, the article you wrote about me. On you. Yeah, what do you think the two most... Uh, you, tell, you tell me. Okay, so number one is the undersell of the amount of Pearl Jam concerts I've been to. is pretty much unanimously been brought up. And I laugh too because I'm like, the fact checker asked me 100 questions. But didn't ask me about the number of Pearl Jam concerts because I guess technically it wasn't inaccurate. You said more than a dozen, but it's like seven dozen. So, and obviously everyone that knows oh, me, everyone that knows me knows that I've been to a lot. So that's like the first thing everyone says, like, "Wow, they only said you went to twelve Pearl Jam concerts." I'm like, "No, he didn't say that. He said more than a dozen." It's like, "Yeah, but it's way more. How many is it again?" And I'll be like, "83," and they'll be like, "Holy shit!" You know, but. 83. Yeah, I've been to 83. Well, I mean, I'll tell you my Pearl Jam story some yeah. other time. Okay. Well, you can tell it now. I'm always down for a Pearl Jam story. Uh, all right. I'm, I'm at, uh, this is a while ago. I was doing a story on Andre Agassi at Miami Tennis Open. Um, I don't know, maybe 2003, I'm going to say. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for Andre to come out. And there are these guys there and they see my credential. And they're like, oh, Sports Illustrated. Did you write for Sports Illustrated? I said, yeah, yeah. And then, what? So did you write your own stories or did someone tell you what to do or you come up with your own ideas? And so we're talking about Sports Illustrated and editing. And um, I said, what, where are you guys from? And they oh, we're from the Northwest. I said, oh, I used to live in Portland. Do you guys ever hear you were talking about restaurants? And <laughs> I said, what, what, do you guys, what do you guys do up there? Oh, we're in said, music. Oh, we're, we're actually, um, we're, we're in music. We're in a band. I'm like, oh, I used to actually be, kind of into the music scene. What's the name of your band? Maybe I've heard of you. Yeah, maybe. They were like, uh, Pearl Jam. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I heard of it. It, it was not, um, it was not any better. So somewhere in my contacts, I have, uh, Tony Gossard's cell phone number because he couldn't, I mean, they were the coolest guys in the world, but we had this like 10 minute talk about where to, uh, where to eat in Seattle. And then I had no idea who they were. And honestly, it, it was really instructive though, because, I think uh, they were so happy to have a normal conversation, and I didn't say, oh, sure. remember that time where you yeah. played at the Hartford <laughs> Civic Center and the Double Encore came on for Jeremy? Although I was probably there. I think they were so happy to have a normal conversation. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, and Stone Gossard is that's a my, very, very unassuming rock star. 
you know, he probably had his little glasses on and his short hair, and you know, he's 140. Oh yeah, I thought they were just like tennis. I thought they were tennis groupies. They, they yeah. were actually there as a guest of a player who's like, Bandon Stolly was his name. Like, not a very popular player. They were there as like the guest of a journeyman player. You never would have known. They didn't like. I'm sure they just spent the whole day watching tennis, and I bet they didn't get recognized once. I believe it. Anyway, that's yeah. my Pearl Jam story. Where were we? You've been to a lot of shows. Yeah, so that's a big number. So then the other thing people love to mention is they love that you pointed out my accent. Everyone from Buffalo, you know, says that. Like, oh, and also that, you know, but it's not upstate. We're Western, you know. So that those are the two biggest things. Like, the, um, <laughs> <laughs> the reference to my accent and you calling it upstate instead of Western and um, the undersell of my Pearl Jam fandom been the, the two the two biggest takeaways from the my uh friends and loved ones um in reference to the you, you know that always happens though yeah that, that always happens someone and you say like you know he he's an arsonist and uh he, he, he sets fires to banks and then he robs the banks and then and you're like oh my god what what's gonna and people people say it wasn't arugula I ate when we ate lunch it was parsley like <laughs> like people always pick up the strangest thing you always are wondering like you know, you're you're worried about getting sued or whatever. You some huge uh, sweeping statement you make, and it's always a little. I, I did lumber. What do you mean lumber? I just walk like a normal guy. It's always the smallest detail that people uh, hang on. It's never what you think it's going to be. So I, uh, this this is consistent with my experience. Yeah, I, I think I said to my cousin or something like that. I'm like, well, what about that part at the end where I'm pouring my heart out about not wanting to bother people about my illness? <laughs> He's like, well, yeah, yeah, that is other good stuff. I'm just saying, like, only he said only a dozen times. Yeah, <laughs> you've been. To, I know you've been more to a, than a dozen. He's like, yeah, yeah, all right, all right. You know, but no, thank you so much. It's amazing. I'm I'm glad I get the chance to thank you on this. Just that, because I I think I I will be honest. Up until the minute it was on there, I still never thought it would be on there. You know, I Come just on. I just Seriously? yeah, I just thought. I just thought, like, oh, he tried, and he believed in it, but no one else is going to see it. You know, that it's just not – I guess I just didn't even believe myself that it was worthy, you know? Um, but you got to remember, I, I'm a guy – I would not have done it. I wouldn't have done it. I'm a guy who went – you know, I remember the first Sports Illustrated I bought. You know, I was, um, I was with my dad, and we were at Tops, which is a grocery store chain in buffalo i know the exact location and at the time behind the registers when you walked in the store there was a huge magazine rack and we would often i would often just walk in with my parents and say oh can i look at the magazines and it was perfect because then when they went through the aisle they would see me and i could walk out with them with when they went through the checkout and i remember i would normally look at wrestling magazines and i remember this time the cover of the sports illustrated caught my eye because it was the 35th anniversary edition and it was like Muhammad Ali on the cover holding a, I think, a, a magazine with him on the cover, I think is what it was, something like that. This big silver sports book. And I remember opening it up, and it was more like an almanac than an edition of the magazine because it was just a collection of memories and stories from the 35 years of the magazine. Like, I remember the day I bought the first Sports Illustrated I ever bought. And I remember every single week in high school, you know, getting off the bus on Thursdays, knowing that Sports Illustrated was in the mailbox and going to it and flipping into the back page and reading Rick Riley's column while I walked into the house and finishing it in the boot room, you know. So I just, I guess, 
never thought, you know, I deserve to be in it or something. But so thank you. Well, I'm glad it worked out. It was not done as, uh, you know, a, a great story. I, I mean, I, I mean, you're, you, you make for a great story. I, I did not do it as an act of charity. I thought it was worthy. And, uh, you know, the decision makers did as well. So don't, don't think twice about that. Well, speaking of uh, good stories, <laughs> today we're here to talk about glory days. The summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. And it's the fourth book written by John Wertheim. I'm sticking with Wertheim, by the way, because I can't say Wertheim or whatever, uh, that we have featured in the book club. So we have Scorecasting was first. And I believe the Al Michaels book was second, right? And then This Is Your Brain on Sports was third. And now this. Or, you know, the second and third are flipped. Whatever. I don't remember which one was first. Al Michaels or This Is Your Brain on Sports. But anyway, it's the fourth one, um, which is close to a record. But I'm sure Perlman's got you on that. I bet there's more Perlman books. Probably. Doesn't matter. Um, And this is one of those that I like a lot to feature because I knew about it way before it, you know? Like, we talked about its existence, like, a year before it was going to be released. And then I like, you know, getting it early and then having it released and then talking to you on this day today. So I'm excited about this. How's the, re- the reception been so far? I know it came out this week, right? Um, yeah, so, so far so good. I mean, um, you know, it's a little, little early to tell, but seems to uh, seems to be a good week. And, yeah, I, yeah I mean, honestly, this this book was uh, this was this was labor of love book. I mean, you know, this was not a book that uh, you you write in hopes it sells a million copies. This was just one of those books that was kind of uh, I, I would have been upset if someone else had done it and it was fine and I was sort of able to do it you know, on planes and when I was doing other stuff. So it was um, this was like the the passion project in between the. Uh, you know, this, this is this is the fun. This is the fun project to do between the big budget movies. Although it seems like people are interested, I saw it was number one on Amazon Sports Journalism. It was number one on sports books on Apple iBooks or whatever that's called. Um, but I love scorecasting. You know, to me, it, it reminds me of um, the start of this. You know, because it was so early in my in my journey, it just puts me in that era of starting the shows and starting to talk to authors and things like that. I mean, the first time you were on was to talk about scorecasting. So that has a special place in my heart, but I think I like this one the best so far, just because I love nostalgia for this era, you know, and very much to me, the book is, you know, feels like a nostalgia play in a way, you know, I guess maybe because of the pop culture tie in, it's just like, I really enjoyed reading it and getting into the era, you know, and, and thinking about, my life and thinking about the first time I heard things that are mentioned in it or the first time I watched the karate kid, which is my all time favorite movie, you know, or, um, whatever. I think that, that that's kind of the charm of it so far for me. It was for me when I read it It was just kind of being in the moment and thinking about the various pieces of culture or sports that are talked about in the pages of it and kind of thinking about it in the context of my life. Is that the goal? Is that, did I get lost somewhere there, or is that a bonus? Um, what do you think about? No, that? I, th- I think that's pretty good. I mean, I think um, I, I, I appreciate hearing that. You're you are uh, 
not insignificantly younger than I am. So I'm interested that, that it sort of rang nostalgic for you. I mean, I think some of it is nostalgia and some of it is like you relive that summer and the music and the movies and, um, and the sports. Um, but, I, but I also, you know, some of it is a lot of what happened that summer from David Stern becoming commissioner to Michael Jordan emerging as this superstar to ESPN figuring out a business model where it can be profitable, um, WrestleMania, profitable Olympics, Trump, Karate Kid. I mean, a, a lot of what happened that summer has a lot of impact today. And I think that was, um, that was almost as much a reason I did it as the nostalgia. That it, it wasn't just, oh my gosh, right. all these amazing things happened in the span of a few months, but also these things are still sort of undergirding sports today. And what, what are sports today if Vince McMahon doesn't take over the WWE? And what are sports today if David Stern and Jordan and the NBA don't ascend? And what are sports today if ESPN doesn't exist if it's losing so much money as it was prior to 1984? So um, I, I tried to kind of blend the nostalgia with this sense of like, oh yeah, everything in 2021, uh, all of this still echoes today. Yeah, and I think, like, yeah, 1984, I was only four, you know, so I didn't necessarily cool. see the Karate Kid in the theater. But so many of the things in the book transcend that just singular year. You know what I mean? Like, if you just look at the cover, like, okay, Bird and Magic, that went on the whole decade. You know, Michael Jordan, that went on through the 90s. You know, Wayne Gretzky through the 90s. You know, Prince through the 2000s. Bruce still to today. You know, the Karate Kid with right. Cobra Kai still relevant. You know what I mean? So many of it transcended just that one moment of the year. You know, and when I, and I'm kind of in that being born in the first year of a decade, you know, being born in 1980, I'm kind of both an 80s kid and a 90s kid. You know what I mean? I kind of grew up in both decades. So I have the five. Yeah, I was, was going to say, you, yeah. you think of your, uh, you, you think of your, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I've got almost 10 years on you. Yeah, I think of myself as but an 80s kid. I think of myself kid. as an, an 80s kid and so not do a I. 70s kid. Yeah, I think of myself yeah, as an 80s yeah. kid more than 90. Because I think, you know, by the time I'm 14, it's only 1994, and I feel like a different – I don't know. I'm still a kid. I don't know. I, I can very – you can very much talk me into both, but I but I guess it maybe depends. Like, yeah. my music is very 90s, but also 80s. You know, I don't know. Like, I'm a huge A-team guy, huge crowdy kid guy, huge – you know, like, the, I think the one missing piece from 1984 in the book that – broke my heart to not get a spot was the album 1984, you know, because I'm a big Van Halen guy. I think they released that on New Year's. Yeah, yeah, it was very, it was, it was pre, it was kind of pre the book, you know what I mean? It was right away in the year. By uh, by the summer, no, but by the the summer, they were already touring on that. Yeah. But, uh, no, I understand why it wasn't, it's not like you missed it. Four Days was a summer, Purple Rain was the summer, but I think I think 1984, the album, was they released it on New Year's Eve. No, you're right. Yep. It was er- very early in the year. You're, you're right about that. I wasn't saying, like, you missed it or anything like that. Just saying, like, you know, when I think of the year 1984, it's in my top three, probably. But, um, yeah, you know, obviously, with the focus being on the summer. But, uh, no, I, I think I do consider myself an 80s kid more than a 90s kid. But I am lucky enough to be able to put myself in either one if I want. You know what I mean? If There you go. If there's a 90s kick convention i can still check in you know being born in the first yeah, exactly. yeah yeah but um yeah i'm trying to think so what about so karate kid what you know there's another thing that was interesting about this book i thought too is i would go through the different subjects i'm like this would be a really good 
book. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, there is a book on that. You know, like you're talking about the ESPN chapter in the business. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I remember the first 150 pages of the James Andrew Miller book was kind of about this to some degree. You know, and then and it, and it kind of reinforced the um, the thesis in a way about so many significant things happening. Like so many of the things that were chapters in this book are five, six hundred page books outside of it. You know what I mean? Whether it's ESPN or, you know, Bruce or Gretzky or Jordan or, you know, the Lakers, you know, Perlman has the Showtime book or, you know, whatever. So that was another kind of observation i had that these things are so significant that when you pull them out individually they can balloon into 800 page books themselves well 800 is extreme you know what i mean 300 whatever right um yeah i mean you know perlman usfl book someone asked me about um i mean the way it started is someone said "Do do you think you could do a book on the 1984 olympic team I thought, I don't, you know, Jack did his dream team book and had plenty of material. I don't think there was a great demand or a great desire to write a book on the 1984 Olympic team. But you look at what else was happening on the sports calendar and you start putting it all together. And uh, I, I thought you could, you could draw from all these things and you, you could do a pretty cool book based on that. Yeah, I think you maybe said it in a more interesting way. The other thing I was kind of thinking about when I was reading is just Indiana too, you know, and your connection to Indiana, you know, and, you know, Michael Jackson from Indiana. And, you know, you talk about the, um, the, uh, David Lee Roth, I'll have you know. Yeah. David Lee Roth, the, uh, the, um, the try the Olympic trials or tryouts or whatever was that part of it as well. Like, did you enjoy kind of putting yourself back in your state and the connections there? That was something I was thinking about and reading it every time Indiana would, come up or you know especially the chapter about uh michael jackson and then oh and then i have another thing about the michael jackson thing too but what about indiana as kind of a character in the book yeah i mean i you know it's it's hard to sort of divorce yourself i mean it loomed large to me because i was i was living there in 1984 um but i but i also think objectively you know it was certainly the, the center of the basketball universe you had Camp, you had michael jackson you had um Later on, it wasn't in the summer, but later in 1984, Indianapolis coached a football team from Baltimore. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a big year, big year for the state of Indiana as well. Yeah, and the, 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 the Michael, that's another thing I thought of to another book, the Michael Jackson tour and how the Patriots and the Patriots Sullivan owner kind of bankrolled it. That's a big part of the the franchise are, is that what it's called? The franchise? Uh, it just came out last year by, um, uh, was it, who wrote Was it Ian O'Connor that wrote it? The Patriots book. I think it might've been Ian O'Connor, maybe someone else. I'll look it up. But that, that was another example of, you know, so many of the things that are in the book are so iconic that there are other books, which is something I took away. And, and my favorite thing is the karate kid. You know, I, when I was in the teacher phase of my life, during the summer at summer school, I would teach this boys-only curriculum, which unfortunately has gone the way of the dodo because of, I don't know, I guess you can't just teach to boys anymore. Um, but I would show the karate kid in that every year. And, you know, these were to kids who were in the sixth grade going on seventh grade. And um, every single year that I showed it, 
on Monday, at least one kid would come up to me and be like, oh, this weekend I rented part two and part three and, you know, just making new Karate Kid maniacs. And one of my kids actually, when Cobra Kai reached out, one of my, were came out, one of my former students reached out to me. He's like, oh, are you so pumped for Cobra Kai? Like, can you believe it? And it's just such an iconic movie. And it has the resurgence with Cobra Kai, which is actually good, which is the best part of it. But I was just giddy reading that chapter. Did you have fun writing about Karate Kid? And and um, it's kind of interesting how something from 1984, and it's such a big part of the book, is having a resurgence now, culturally, you know, right now because of Cobra Kai. It, it's funny because I talked to Ralph, I talked to Macho for that uh, chapter. Um, and he's like, you may want to hold off because I can't really tell you yet, but we've got some big news we're about to announce. And I was kind of like, well, you know, let's, you never know what that means. I'm like, well, let's talk Karate Kid. We can always revisit if uh, you know if, if news dictates. Um, so I think I think we talked about this, and then I think we we talked a second time once uh, once Cobra Kai came out. But I I mean the funny thing about Karate Kid is that you're, you're teaching it in class, and you know I mean I think most most kids today have have seen it 35, 37 years later um, when they filmed it. Ralph said the guys are kind of like, well, you know, it was you got to ride around go karts and you know uh, it was it was a fun few weeks in L.A. But none of us thought it was like a particularly good movie. We all thought it was kind of cheesy and it was sort of something to do in between. He, he had just been, I think, in, um, in in the Outsiders and was looking for another role. And it, I don't think anyone thought it was going to be the uh, the sensation it was. And sometimes just things things click and things you know hit a nice wave in pop culture or there there's some lines in the movie that people remember um but they're all all the guys that were in the cast they're they're as surprised as anyone they, they thought it was sort of uh you know six weeks to uh make a quick paycheck and then move on to the next project they they never would have said in 1984 that in 2021 we're going to be making uh streaming series that are derivative of this or right. that have sequels and that guys are still going to like talk about wax on wax off yeah and i thought the the quote that's in the in the front of the chapter right is from roger ebert and he says i didn't want to see this movie i took one look at the title and figured a it was either a a sequel to toenails of vengeance or b an adventure pitting ricky schroeder against megalothman i was completely wrong the karate kid is one of the nice surprises of 1984 an exciting sweet-tempered heartwarming story with one of the most interesting friendships in a long time and that was from June of 84, he said that, you know? And I guess that's a little bit like what you're saying. Like, even when it came out, you know, just like the title is kind of this kind of not the best title maybe and kind of this unassuming thing even to Roger, you know, Roger Ebert. And then, boom, you know, it's outlived Roger Ebert. Rest his soul. Um, yeah, man. But, yeah. yeah. So as a guy with the wrestling podcast and someone who's been, you know, a fan of wrestling since 1986 when uh, I was slipping through the channels and, 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 and seeing this big fat guy squishing a blonde haired guy with yellow shorts and um, was immediately uh, sucked into the crazy world of wrestling. I um, I'm always excited when it's included in, in more mainstream discussions, you know what I mean? Things outside of the, uh, of the context of the wrestling world itself. And I was excited to read about the summer of 84 
including wrestling. Did you did you think about right away? Like, is it like how did you come to the decision to include wrestling? I guess you know because so many people um, would not have. I don't think. Are, are you a wrestling fan? Did you just feel like uh, the story transcended? sport the the book transcended sports because it was so much about sports entertainment anyway and since wrestling straddles both it was just a natural fit or am i just being a little bit of a self-conscious wrestling fan and of course this would have been in the book everyone who would have wrote this book would have included it um no i mean some of this book you know i, I sort of knew some general beats I wanted to hit. I knew I wanted a lot of Jordan, but other, I kind of just let the reporting take me, uh, take me where it took me. And I, I think, don't hold me to this. I'm pretty sure that, um, I think this started with Ted Turner and I was sort of talking about ESPN and how it was a big summer for ESPN. It was for sale and, um, ABC ended up buying it, but Ted Turner had tried to bite and Ted Turner had wanted to buy ESPN as well and was shut out. And then I, I can't even, someone sort of thought, well, that was also the summer, uh, you know, Ted Turner tried to get involved and take over wrestling as well. And I just kind of went down the rabbit hole and realized this was a pivotal summer for Vince McMahon. And then I learned about, and I, I kind of vaguely remembered it. I mean, the, the full disclosure, I'm not, the wrestling ain't my sport and, um, never really was. And I, I leaned on, um, Jimmy Trainer, who I work with, and then Dave Shoemaker at, at the Ringer, to uh, sort of help me with some of the uh, the wrestling. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized this was really a pivotal summer for. Uh, I mean, it, I guess it was WWF at the time, and then you, you know this, I'm sure. Then there was a lawsuit with uh, World Wildlife Fund, yeah, and they had to give up WWF. Yeah, uh, I still call it WWF. I still call it that anyway. Um, yeah, pe- people apparently still catch themselves. But, yeah, um, I do. Yeah, then I started, I started looking into this this fight at Madison Square Garden, and it was it was MTV, and it was Cindy Lauper, and it was basically like, you know, you, you had MTV that was, get, you know, starting to make money, starting to get subscribers, starting to uh, establish itself, and they were doing videos, you know, day and night. But then somebody said, "Wait a second, it's kind of a slow slow weeknight in the summer." you know, we're, we're trying to branch out and, and find original programming. And, and this guy, Vince McMahon is trying to have wrestling enter the mainstream. And they had this crazy idea for a wrestling card. It was the week before the summer Olympics. So it was sort of the dead of summer on a weeknight. And then ended up being this phenomenally successful event at Madison square garden. That basically was the genesis of WrestleMania, which is now obviously, yeah, you know, this this huge annual franchise. So I, I didn't really know much about it. It's just kind of where the reporting took me. And Ted Ted Turner, for the record, got shut out as well. Imagine if Ted Turner that summer, and it was a real possibility, imagine if Ted Turner had figured out a way to own both ESPN and professional wrestling. He was kind of the runner-up in both cases. Um, imagine if he'd pulled that off, what his power in sports would have become. I just don't know if he would have had the vision – or the patience, or the time to break down the territory system and really do what needed to be done to make wrestling go from regional to national. You know what I mean? I don't know. 
because I've been thinking about that a little bit since reading it. Like, what if Ted Turner? And I don't know if I still. I think you know if he buys it but keeps Vince, you know, in some capacity, or if they split it or something. But I don't know. You know, it's interesting because I, I, you know, David Shoemaker. He nobody talks about wrestling more brilliantly than he does. I think he's, you know, the best in the world at bring up any wrestling topic and just let him go. He's so good. And on the sportscasters once, he said the most brilliant thing about wrestling, I think. And he said, wrestling exists in people's past. And for me, I watch wrestling almost every day, and I haven't watched anything current in probably 20 years. I mean, everything I watch is catalog. Um, You know, and I watch stuff over and over again. And I watch... um, you know, new things or read books or listen to, but nothing is current. You know, I haven't watched, um, I watched WrestleMania 30, I think was the last one. I think they're up to 37 or 38, but, um, I love this era the most. Um, and I love this Cindy Lauper angle. You know, I love the idea that she meets Captain Lou Albano on a plane. And then a few months later, you know, her manager, Dave Wolf, who apparently was a wrestling fan, as you said, you say in the book, um he he kind of uh he kind of mentions him and she says i know him and then next thing you know she's getting kicked by rowdy piper you know in the ring in madison square garden and i mean i don't know if you went back and watched that i'm sure you did you watched that segment they did um in june of 84 where they give captain lou the award did you did you watch that or no maybe that that the one where they give him the award is before um before the the second one before the um the war to settle the score, not before the brawl to end it all. So the one before us, I mean, yeah. But that's incredible where Roddy Piper comes out and cracks Lou over the head with the record, and then he slams Dave Wolf, and he he um, kind of kicks, quote-unquote, Cindy Lauper. It's really she's kind of laying on his foot, and he kind of tosses her across the ring a little bit. But, I mean, not only was Cindy Lauper in wrestling, but she was so into doing it. You know, she took bumps. She did segments like she wasn't shot. She was the perfect person. Like, could you imagine Rihanna not only being in wrestling, but also taking a bump? You know, it's just impossible to think of. Like, it was an unbelievable, just the right people at the right time kind of a moment. Yeah, I mean, I think Cindy Lauper, too, um, I, I think it's sort of hard, hard to divorce her from Lou Albano, who is, uh, right. had a big role in this as well. I also think, you know, she was kind of a late bloomer as, as a musician. She kind of needed a, a bit of a, um, you know, she, she wasn't Madonna. She wasn't Michael Jackson. She saw that this was a market and I, I think she really liked it as well. Um, but I, I also think it was, it's kind of a good, it's a good lesson about just kind of, uh, experimenting. And I think she sort of shrugged her shoulders and said, well, I don't know, you know, it's, putting my audio giving uh exposing myself to a new audience and i think that was basically vince mcmahon's idea as well and they both played the part i mean the um the card itself in 1984 was really sort of weird and unpolished and they had this the the big uh you know the the main event it was almost like um the the wrong fighter won and then they it, it was completely random how it played out then it obviously got much more polished. I mean, the, the difference in production quality between uh, 
the brawl to end it all and um the what was the one in 1985 called uh the war to settle the, 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 score. the war to settle the score yeah, yeah. i mean it, it's got but it's it's one year of but uh, you know the upgrade in in production and quality is it's pretty noticeable yeah but um but you you know you just you, you never know what works and i think vince mcmahon um well, when, you, when they tell the Vince McMahon story, he, history will remember him well. Do you know why that they had the wonky finish in '84? Because I can tell you the reason. Um, so what was it? The business back then was based on house shows, so they made all their money taking the matches and show and, and doing them in every market. So when there was something that every market was seeing at once, they never. F- they never gave a clean finish because then it was harder to draw that same match in the next market. You know, so it's almost like a stand-up comedian. When he does a special, he only does it when he's done touring that material. You know, otherwise, people wouldn't come out in the comedy clubs to see that material anymore. Or if they did, they'd be mad. You know what I mean? Like, so back in 84, the whole business was based on the house shows. And it was a rarity for a national event to be on TV like that. So they had to create a finish where um, they could still take that match around the horn and people would still be interested. So that's why they had the gray finish like that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, it was... Uh... <clears throat> no, what were you saying? No, I was just going to I was just going to say, because like, this is still, you know, like, you know, in the book, like six months before WrestleMania, you know, and even in the first few WrestleManias there, they don't kill off feuds the way they do now. Like now WrestleMania is where feuds end. They, they culminate the stories there. And we're, as you know, we're, we're used to that back then. They wouldn't end stories at the big, big events. They would almost use the big events as a way to draw people into the next chapter of the story. Um, you know, gotcha. so there's a lot of examples like that. I thought the attendance was really interesting, and I went in a, a pretty deep rabbit hole. In June of '84, they had twenty six thousand zero ninety two at the Garden, so that means they had both the Garden and the Felt Forum full. Um, then they have Black Saturday on July fourteenth, which you mentioned in the book, um, and then at the Brawl to end it all, they only had fifteen k, which was kind of weird because then at the War to settle the score. They had 26,900, which means they really had the felt forum packed as well. Um, so some interesting kind of attendance numbers there that I looked up. Um, I thought that that was interesting. But I love this wrestling chapter. I think the only thing you got wrong in the whole chapter is that Vince McMahon Sr. was not um, all that excited about Hulk Hogan going to do Rocky. He actually told Hulk, you're either a wrestler or a movie star. And when Hulk did the movie... He didn't come back to um, WWF until Vince Jr. called him in 84. Uh, he went to AWA in the meantime, was in Minnesota working for uh, the Gagne's um, in, in between. But I just love that, you know, that, that chapter and reading about wrestling. And you did a great job telling the story as a non-wrestling guy. I, I got to say, I, I was a little surprised that the, uh, you, you can help me with this. Yeah, I was a little surprised that all of these regional promoters didn't mount a uh, <laughs> a more fierce defense, or, or 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 conversely say, you know what, you're right. This is crazy. Why are we restricting these guys to Minnesota and you know, in North Dakota? Why don't we all figure out a way to 
you know, it's like, it's like a sports league. Why, why don't we all figure out a way to nationalize this thing? I mean, it just, it's amazing to me that this, all these regional promoters that had some real value in their product, just based, based you know, in wrestling, they sort of tapped out. Yeah. And why they weren't able either to, either to fight more vigorously or else join Vince McMahon. And it seems like he sort of won in a route. And I, I could never quite figure out why these regional guys, uh, didn't uh, didn't didn't mount a more aggressive defense or figure out a way to partner. Well, I he think just basically put them all out of business, right? Yeah. Well, I think Vince McMahon's quote was brilliant. You know, where he said the first meeting they had, all they could agree on was that they hated him, and on the second meeting, they couldn't even agree. You know, on lunch, like the 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 problem was they were so used to working independently. You know, they had the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, but really all that function as was a way to have a top champion and then all agree that that champion would come around. Like, you know, like Harley Race or Ric Flair, when they were the NWA champion, they wouldn't just work in their territory. They would go to all the other territories. Um, and it would be a big deal that the NWA champion was coming in, and they almost used that as a gimmick to to spike a number. But I think it was unique to each territory why they didn't win. You know, like in Kansas City, uh, in that territory, they fought real hard. Harley Race brought a gun to the arena when WWF ran the first time um, and had a, a confrontation with Hogan in the um, in the bathroom. But then a couple months later, he showed up in the WWF locker room and joined them. You know, and uh, some guys were real stubborn, like Vern Gagne in Minnesota. And I guess to him, he was just too old and had done it too long and wasn't willing and. He died. He he went right down. He he got the contract at ESPN, but just couldn't battle him. I think it was just these guys were just from a different era, and they didn't understand TV like Vince did, and they didn't have the vision, and they weren't used to working together like that, and they just couldn't agree. And some of them took the money from Vince. You know, some of them sold and got great paydays and retired. You know, some sold and say Vince never paid them, like in Calgary, Bret Hart's dad's territory he sold it to Vince McMahon but never got any money from him um so it, it's it's so it's a crazy story in general um because each one has a different reason for blowing it you know but the number one thing is they didn't have I would, Vince McMahon. I would read a uh I'd, I'd read a book about that I'd read a book about that uh origin story right there yeah I have one I'll send you for sure um well, I love glory days because I just love, like I said, the era and going back to it and the origin of it and the different moments. And even though um, there's a lot of basketball, but I enjoy the basketball stuff, actually, even though I'm not a basketball guy. I enjoy Jordan and the NBA finals and and their kind of ascension from being dark. Like this 84 finals this is the first one Stern had, right, as commissioner? Late. 84 finals with Stern's kind of coming out part, yeah, right? Yeah, and that's an interesting thing to read in the book. I love reading about that too, and learning about that and the music. I mean, I love the music. Are you a are you a sports writer who's a Springsteen guy? Because I know that's a you know it's like sports writers. Yeah, are... I mean, you know, like Joe Pismansky. I mean, there's a whole. Um, yeah, I'm a Springsteen guy. I mean, not like you know, I'm, I'm not to Springsteen what you are to Pearl Jam. Okay, but I I like Springsteen. Yeah, I mean. Who doesn't like Springsteen? But I'm not like, you know, I, I'm trying to think who Liz Clark or Posnansky. I mean, there's some of these guys who, um, Tommy, who is Tommy Tomlinson. Some of these guys, uh, you know, are, are yeah. 
could could sit down and yeah, whatever. Hitting triple digits on how many shows they've been to. I'm not in that not in that category. I I uh, I've been to two or three Springsteen shows, and the one show was in Buffalo, and it was um, the last show on the tour. And for some reason, it kind of got around that oh, this might be Bruce's last tour. It wasn't not even close. But for some reason, that that word had gotten around. So. It was a star-studded affair in Buffalo that night. I remember they said that the air traffic at the the prior aviation, the like private airport, was insane that day with all the rich guys with private planes that came in. Baba Booey was here, um, and was ta- him and Artie Lang came in. We're talking about Stern the next day. Um, that was kind of a wild thing. And I was like, oh, it'd be cool if I went to the last ever Springsteen show. But I think I've personally been to like one or two since, so it definitely didn't end up being the last one. But uh, glory days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. I don't have as much time as I usually do with you, John, but we'll, I'll get you back. I know that. So we'll talk more about it or um, maybe at the end of this cycle. Let me ask you this because we got, I'll say, five minutes left. So you have two minutes to regroup before your next shot. Can you explain to me in a few minutes what in the world is going on with the tennis player who won't talk to the media? Like what what happened there? What's the Reader's Digest version of oh, that? Uh, and what do you think? Do you really think it's a mental health issue or is this a, a power play by the players to try to gain an upper hand? What in the world? What is that? She's not playing Wimbledon now either? It is a, uh, I, think, I think it's 100% a mental health issue. Okay. And she, she's, talked about it, she's talked about it in the past, and this wasn't like something she just sprung on. I mean, she's talked about her mental health challenges in the past. She's talked about how, uh, you know, she, she has some, some awkwardness and some discomfort talking in, in large groups to the media, to trophy presentations. I mean, this isn't news to people within tennis. And I think that, um, I mean, I, I get how sort of the general, the general media might have interpreted this, but I'm really surprised that the tennis authorities, that all the, all the adults, that all these tournaments didn't realize what was happening. And they, they saw this as this act of defiance or this, this entitled athlete that was going to try and buy her way out of something she didn't want to do. And that wasn't, that wasn't it at all. But even if, it is, people, even if it is mental know, health, isn't it those other things too, though? I mean, can it be I, all of those things? I think things? she just was in a really bad place, and I think she, you know, she, she's been wonderfully successful, but hasn't had success lately. And I think she didn't think this was anything other than, I'm really uncomfortable. This makes me really anxious, and I really don't want to deal with the consequences of all this right now. I think that um, the, the second memo she sent out was probably the one she should have sent first, and would have put a lot of this to rest. I mean, the timing wasn't great. Some of the wording wasn't great. But I, I was just shocked that people within tennis misinterpreted this as this, like, d- defiant athlete trying to take down an institution and didn't realize it was just sort of a, a, a damaged, broken human being. And uh, it was um, – I put tennis in the news, I'll say that. I mean, I, I was over at the French Open – when this broke and I, I did more interviews about that than I did about any of the actual match results, which had an all time great match. You know, in it. Everyone, uh, right. Djokovic yeah, exactly. and Nadal, we, we one had, of the all time uh, great matches. Yeah, yeah. It had a great match. It had a great match. It had a great result. It had sort of history. Um, 
but I, I did I did more sort of mainstream interviews about Naomi Osaka than I did about anything that happened on the court. And uh, you know, she'll she'll be back. Careers are long. She's uh, she's she's twenty three, and Serena's what? Serena's thirty nine. So um, I, I think this will be a blip. But um, yeah, I mean, it was. I, I think anything involving the media, the media often likes to talk about. It does sort of fit sure. into this. Well, that's the show. About the athlete. <laughs> media yeah yeah thank like, god yeah, exactly. yeah thank god anyone. right that's yeah, yeah right yeah right. you know that better than anyone <laughs> right. but um it's uh it, it was it was interesting to see sort of how this played out and how it got processed in in mainstream i mean you know both in shouldn't be surprised but it turned into this polarizing debate and you know Pier- Piers morgan is saying she's a coddled baby and other people who don't really understand or sort of framing it in, in their political terms. And I, I don't think it was really a whole lot more than a, a, a damaged individual who didn't want to do something that was going to make her more uncomfortable. I don't think this was like a great grand statement or this Marshawn Lynch type attack on an institution. Just, just one person who wasn't up for uh well, wasn't up for a media session. I think though, if you're just one person and you're not up for a media session, I think you just take the consequences that come with not showing up to the media session. I mean, don't even say anything. Just, you know, I'm not up for yeah, it. No, okay, $15,000 fine. Okay, pay you, it. Why would you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that happens. That happens from time to time. I mean, uh, because I, the only reason know, I say that, John, I'm sorry. But the only reason I say that is because, like, I do see the other side of, like, well, if we want to hold on to the idea that the athletes are going to talk to us and not just use their social media platforms and things like that to get the word out. Like we can't just say, all right. Right. Cause I mean, when then everyone just say, you know what? I don't want to do it either. I'm, I have a mental health day. I don't know. I hate the slippery slope. They, um, I hate the slippery slope the, thing, uh, but it feels like one. Yeah. yeah. I hear you. You know what I mean? I don't I know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, but I don't know how many, I mean, do you, I, I don't think like, I'm not sure a lot of athletes would, would actually play that card. I mean, I think they, you know, they asked the players what they thought. And I thought the, the players were really good. And the players basically said, well, aren't they with their teammate I there though? Gets well soon. Yeah. They're sticking up for their teammate though. They don't care about the media business. No, yet. no, but they, no, no, but they said the, op- no, no, they said the opposite. They, they oh. said, I hope she gets better too, but I don't see it the way she sees it. They all said okay. like, I don't agree with that. I, I don't see it the way she sees it. I always like these sessions. These sessions are always important. Sometimes you like it when you win you don't like it when you lose but they're important to have and the other players basically did it they didn't stick it they didn't throw her under the bus right but they didn't stick up for her oh, they okay. essentially said I, I hope she gets better soon but i don't i don't see it the way she sees it i thought that was a really kind of uh encouraging response yeah i don't see it either but i hope she does get better and i'm not against her in any way like you know what i mean it's not that i hope she does get better i just think maybe and maybe i'm wrong but i just think maybe the best thing to do is if you just if it's just simply that like just then just don't do it and whatever then the punishment is just kind of quietly serve the punishment and just kind of move on i don't know maybe i'm wrong look at any time i have you on the phone i want you on for longer and this is not enough to for my, but that's okay we'll, we'll do it again more i know we will um one last time the book is called the summer of 1984 and the 90 days to change sports and culture forever by l john wertheim because i can't say wertheim even if that's right and uh in the words of kurt cobain i am forever in debt to you um, what is what song is that um, from uh, In Utero? Uh, hey, wait, that? that one. 
I got a new heart shaped box. Heart shaped box. That was it. There we go. Yeah. Um, thank, I like that. I yeah. Like thank you so much for uh, for everything the last few months. I, I will always love and appreciate you. Well, you got it. Anytime. This uh, pleasure and um, happy to do it again. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy. Out in the back seat of my 60 Chevy Working on mysteries without any clues I want to thank John Wertheim for being on the Sportscasters today. Always love having uh, Mr. Wertheim on the show. Please check out Glory Days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. As we are kind of chipping away at what's left of the book club. Before we take a little bit of a break for the summer, there is a, I saw a new Joe Poznanski book coming out in September. I'm really looking forward to that. There's also a Kirk Herbstreet book coming out. And boy, I'd really love if that meant that he was the going to make a debut finally on the show. That'd be great if we can get him um, tied in with the book because I always wanted to have him. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure there'll be a bunch of stuff, uh, as the, we get closer to the fall football books, whatever. But now that glory days is done and we took care of Dave Jordan and Cobra last week, we just have the, um, the basketball book left by, uh, by Pete. And, um, I wasn't sure. I thought I had it laying around here somewhere. Um, but, uh. Let me find it. It's from Hang Time to Prime Time by Pete Croato. And uh, I'm just about finished with it. It's a great read. Some good stuff in there about the rise of the NBA business entertainment and the birth of the modern day NBA. So I'm looking forward uh, to talking to Pete. Um, I'll finish that book now and then we'll take a little bit of break for the summer. And then before you know it, like I said, the book club will heat back up because there's a bunch of stuff coming out this fall that I can't wait to read. So, and I keep a list and you never know when someone will reach out to me and I'll feel bad. And next thing you know, we'll be reading something anyway. So I'm sure it won't be long, but uh, I appreciate everyone uh, who's allowed us to help promote their book, especially John Wertheim. Um, and, and then our next guest uh, who authored a book called Difficult Men which came out in 2013, and it's about the anti-heroes that define the television revolution, like Tony Soprano and uh, uh, who's Walter White, and you know all the great characters from the shows that redefined what it meant to be TV and to watch TV. And it's a great catch-up with him, so I can't wait for you to hear it. 
Uh, so let's take a break. We'll be right back with Brett Martin. Next guest today is making his first appearance on the podcast in seven years. And he's the author of one of my favorite books in the history of the book club, Difficult Men. He writes about food for GQ. He also did an amazing profile on Larry David. He's an admirer of Buffalo Chevetta sauce. And he's a polite and, and, and kind and good friend of mine. A warm welcome to the podcast for the first time in a long time. To Brett Martin. What's up, Brett? How you doing, man? Hey, how are you? Good to talk to you. I have a really... How are, uh, how are you doing? I have a funny story to tell you. So, <laughs> you, have you ever okay. have you ever heard of the ESPN uh, personality and sports writer Gene Wojciechowski? Yes. Okay. Woj. Yeah, so he wrote a book. And and not the... not. Um, there's another Wojciechowski there that breaks all the basketball stories. Not him. Right? Uh, oh. He's from. He went to St. Bonaventure. Two Wojo Huskies. They do. Isn't that crazy? Are they related? I don't. I don't believe so. Wow. I guess I've always thought they were the same person. So yeah. That's bad on me. But any, yeah. So anyway, anyway, go on. Yeah, the one I'm talking about actually wrote a basketball book called "The Last Great Game," and the the game he's referencing is the one where Christian Leitner from Duke hit the buzzer beater against Kentucky. You know the the, the sure. yeah the long pass by Grant Hill and um and, and this was like in 2012 2011 pretty early in the show and it was one of the first books we featured in our book club and man I loved the book and I remember I, when I was asking him to be on he he like didn't offer me a book so I bought it myself and I was like hey I, I got the book anyway like just you know I read it and, and then he felt bad so he sent me an autographed copy. And we did the interview, and it was really good. And I was like, "Man, this guy, this guy's gonna be a regular. You know, I'm gonna have this guy on all the time. It's gonna be great." So then, for the next eight years or so, I would email him a couple times a year, and he would politely decline to be on. Right? He always had the, he always had this. Like, I'd email him, say, "Hey, I'd love to talk to you about this," and he'd be like, "Oh man, this week I'm at this. I can't." And I'd be like, how about next week? And then I just wouldn't hear from him. So then this, yeah. went, this went on every year. Like about four years in, I, I kind of picked up on it. But I'm like, he's so polite about it. I'm just going to ask him every year. You know what I mean? So finally, he's like, all right, I'll do it. You know, fine. You know, next week or whatever. So I'm like, oh, great. So he's back. We have this great interview. It's about 35, 40 minutes long. At about the 30-minute mark, I look to my left. And realize I'm not recording it. So, so, and I'm like nine years into the history of the show. It's the first time I've ever done this, you know. So, like, I'm thinking to myself, like, do I stop them? You know, like, so no, I just finished the interview like it was normal. Hung up with them and never talked to them again. 
I didn't I didn't call him back. I didn't admit it. I just I didn't say a word. I just let it die. And I, I just tell that story. Wow. I tell that story because you remind me of him a little bit where you wrote this amazing book, Difficult Men. It's one of my favorite books in the history of the book club. We had an unbelievable interview. We made a little bit of a connection. I sent you Chavetta's mm-hmm. sauce. And every yes. every year or so I email you to come on and you politely decline. But the big dif- yeah, well, the big difference is I am recording. I am recording. So I was gonna say maybe <laughs> you should have switched it up because you should record him and, and 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 space me. Yeah, no, I I do politely decline because I unlike what I imagine Gene Wojcikowski's uh, career is like. There's just long stretches where I don't have anything to talk about, or I feel that way anyway. So I just you know I feel like oh, what the hell? What am I gonna What am I gonna say? Um, it, it's nothing to do with. Um, Nothing to do uh, with you. Oh yeah, I've never um, taken it personal. So t- I'll tell you the story. Uh, uh, a story in exchange before we were getting on. I of course remembered um, the food shipment um, okay. of this sauce, and I, but but it, it, the name had slipped my mind, and so I went. I was like, all right, well, out of respect, I should I should go Google this, and <laughs> and I realized that what you cannot do is Google buffalo chicken. Marinade oh, right. and get anything but yeah. you know, but like yeah, Franks it's all buffalo and, chicken. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah, so buffalo is a completely dead. So you, the, the best way to sort of hide out would be to like name yourself chicken something in buffalo <laughs> or something. Um, but what is it called? It was chuvetas. Chuvetas, yeah, chuvetas, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it started at, a, um, at yeah, a firehouse, was, a firehouse in Angola, New York, which is actually where Chris uh, Christian Leitner's from, Angola, which is south of us. But yeah, wow. Yeah, this is what gets you uh, features in Sports Illustrated. It is, is yes, is He's that t- ability to, <laughs> to 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 bring it all around. Yeah, exactly. To make it a full circle. We're back to Christian later. That was beautiful. <laughs> the, uh, I think that the the reason the sauce came up is because I knew you wrote about food, even though you turned to the dark side and wrote about vegan food. I couldn't even read a paragraph. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I was t- you couldn't read you couldn't. Oh Go God, I I hate everything about the even the idea of being vegan. No way. Mm. I I am a meat. Well, my story my story I, wasn't about being vegan. It was about being a little vegan. No. About eating um eating fake meat. Ugh. To to so that you're not no. I mean, that, that you could that, that my my point was that you could become that um vegan food and the vegan dining world has now become um. First of all, good enough and delicious enough no. and pleasurable enough uh-uh. and also <laughs> widespread <laughs> enough, just keep saying no, um, that it's possible for an omnivore like myself. I mean, I am an omnivore. I, I, I eat meat all the time. Um, can can choose their spots, you know? So if I want to eat like, you know, I feel like if you're alive in this world now, there's got to be some part of you that thinks that. It wouldn't be the worst thing to eat a little less meat, whether it's for health reasons, climate reasons, you know, no, whatever it is. It's a terrible, it's a terrible fucking system, right? Like what gives us meat? Now that doesn't mean I, I eat, you know, I'm not going to stop doing that. But, but uh, anything that allows me to pull out of that a little bit, while also it being delicious, that's what I was writing about. So, yeah. So um, pulling out sucks. So it sounds like scenario. I got you. So you're convinced, right? You're no. Convinced? Here's here's the funny thing about <laughs> bringing it back or whatever, but um, so with Crohn's disease, 
the one year oh, yeah. the one year they said to me they said for for a whole year I want you to write down everything you eat and drink you know yeah. and uh I said oh that seems like a pain but okay they're like it'll be good we'll figure out we're gonna find a pattern here you know what I mean and we're gonna we're gonna make like life easy for you no longer will you have to dash off the 90 expressway to target and run through it and find a bath I'm like okay I'll do it so for one, is this, is this bef- in, in order to get a diagnosis or before you were or, or after you were diagnosed? No, I had the diagnosis, but they were still okay. they were still kind of perplexed about my symptoms, and they said, "Well, maybe it's a food. You know, let's, let's see if we can pin down a food." You know what I mean? So I said, "Sure." So I I wrote down everything I ate, and then also I had to also chart my my um my my move my um my bowel movement move, movements as well. Right. So I do this for a year. And I drop it off to an expert who's going to analyze it and comb through it and everything. And I remember the doctor then was, we were sitting in the appointment. He's kind of reading the report on his computer and kind of laughing and like looking at me and laughing. He's like, man, he's like, they really didn't find anything. He's like, if they're going to make any recommendation, they'd say don't eat any uncooked vegetables or fruit. Really? Yeah. They're like, it just, you, you can't seem to handle that at all. That's the only link they could find. They're like, don't eat any of don't I will occasionally let a, a Caesar salad touch my lips a bite or two. I will occasionally yeah. when I prepare a bowl of fruit for my daughter, um, take a bite of a strawberry or a blueberry. Yeah. And I do eat a plum or two a year. But other than that, I've cut all fruit and vegetables uncooked out of my diet so just the thought of veganism and like well uh, no 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 no, there's another part of it that you i I don't understand i guess the moral i want to hear i want to hear how's it working i just oh no no, please i'm fascinated no i just don't understand like that it's a moral quandra because i mean before we were humans i mean there was people may eat meat i don't know to me it's like the circle of life kind of thing you know i think uh Mm -hmm. you know Maybe I'm justifying my own thirst for meat, but uh, it it does exist. Yeah. You know, I mean, oh, no, no. I, but as I say, I I don't I I do not advocate giving up meat. I advocate trying to reduce eating no. meat that comes from places that <laughs> uh, <laughs> that um, from a world a, a meat system that is just like empirically awful to animals, to people, to the climate, to everything. So. I, I mean, and I don't, I don't even really follow it myself. But my my point in my story was that it's become that vegan food, and not fruits of it, because actually I'm allergic to all raw fruits myself. So you actually eat more. I don't eat two plums a, a year. I don't eat berries. I I actually can only eat cooked um, fruit and most mostly only cooked vegetables. Yeah. Um, but um, try an Impossible Burger, man. It's good. It's really good, and it's good enough. That's my point in the story: is that it's it's like if you could just stop eating. No. I feel like I'm the guy, like I'm the last proselytizer you'll ever meet. But if you had half your burgers were this stuff, you'll feel good about yourself. No, nah. do it. No way. Try it. No way. Go to, get a Whopper. Go, go get a Whopper <laughs> at, the, at the, the vegan or whatever it is. The impossible Whopper It's not vegan, but get the impossible Whopper at uh, Burger King and report back to me. <laughs> All right, I doubt it. I'll but, come back on. I'll oh, come back on. Uh, you know, if, if, to talk about it. All right, next year when I reach out, you can say I will only come on if you eat the the Impossible Whopper. 
and then I'll say, all right, all I'll right. eat one. I, I well, I have to tell you that I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm super sympathetic I, uh, about your, your condition. I, I have nothing that's close to that, but, you know, but, but in my job, first of all, I, I eat, I, you know, I've eaten, one of the things about the last year, not eating in restaurants was my, you know, I lost a ton of weight and I feel a lot better, but, but I have, I'm also reaching an age where I'm, um, for the very first time, I've been extremely lucky in my life, um, having, I have a high, high blood pressure. And um, mm. that introduction of having to think about it at all, what you eat, um, I mean, I, again, I know I'm speaking from a place of extreme luck, um, is brutal. Yeah. Um, and I can only imagine what it's like, you know, to first of all adapt to that. How old were you when you, when this all came uh, out? 25. Well, when it first came out, I was 23. The year that I did the journal was 25. It was like two years in. Gotcha. But yeah, 23, it started. The the scariest thing for me during that journal, and I would tell everyone this, I was just scared to death there and tell me I couldn't eat chicken wings. Yeah. You know, I said, a- I, I said, I don't care what happens as long as I can still eat chicken wings. I'll survive. The one thing is that I can't eat them quite as hot as I used to. Really? The yeah. Doesn't. I can still it just this. I think the hotter they are, they just kind of go through me a little bit quicker. Um, yeah. You know, I can still. I mean, eat. not all of us, baby. I mean, that yeah. you don't need a fancy diagnosis. No, that no, that's probably true. But when I was, you know, twenty, I mean, I would eat the hottest ones they had at Duff's or whatever. You know. Wow. You know, there's this really interesting. Yeah. There's this really interesting thing, and I wanted to talk to you about it, being a food critic, because I thought you might know the phenomenon of it. But so for a long, so there's two kind of well-known wing places here. It's like Duff's and Anchor Bar, right? And Anchor yeah. Bar's claim to fame is that they were the original, allegedly, and Duff's claim to fame is that they were the other great place. They were the play. They were they were the original place that people from Buffalo went. They didn't, we didn't go to Anchor Bar because that was for tourists. We went to Duff's, right? But mm-hmm. na- but now... You're saying Duff, Duff's, like, Duff's like the beer from The Simpsons? Yes, that's the name of the other place, right? Gotcha. Like, yeah. like whenever, you know, Guy Fieri comes to town and does like a chicken wing show, he goes to Anchor Bar and Duff's, yeah. right? And, uh, and the reason Duff's got famous besides how great it was, again, was because that's where people from Buffalo went. Well, now... That is turned against Duff's, right? So now pe- ah. people from here are now saying Duff's is not good because Duff's has yeah. become Duff's has become Anchor Bar as well. Like there's no difference now. You know what I mean? It's it's right. since it's got popular, it's not for people. The tourists go there too, but the difference to me is it's still incredibly good. Like. Every time I go there, I'm like, this is the best, you know, and now yeah. there's all these other places that are popping up that people are like, no, this is the best. No, this is the best. And it's because mm-hmm. people have gotten, I guess, Duff's fatigue in the same way that maybe the Anchor Bar fatigue developed. The thing to me is Anchor Bar was never good. Um, yeah. You know, as long as I went there, I never thought it was good. I just thought, wow, they were incredibly lucky for being first, but. You know, everyone who and I appreciate that, but everyone who came after them has done it better. But um, I just thought that I just think that's so interesting. Like the tide has turned on Duff's. It is now considered by many Buffalonians a tourist trap 
whose wings are no good anymore and go to this small place in South Buffalo, you know, that's on a residential street right. and eat there because those and is are that the good? best. Uh, that one I have yeah. not, that is the one I haven't been to yet because it's literally as far away from like Buffalo. We always say like everything's 15 minutes away. This is like the one area in Buffalo that's actually like 40 minutes away from me. And it's also, like I said, literally on a residential street and they're like open three hours a week and you got to like get there and wait on the sidewalk. I haven't gone through it all yet. I will, but, um, a lot of the other places, and are they? go ahead. Is it like a hipster artisanal wing place, or I mean, is that what is, is it like elevated? What what is its deal? Or, or is no, it just they're, another they're, they're just another straight up fry them, pull them out, sauce them type of wing place. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and people absolutely love it, and I hope to love it. There's also another place called Barbell, um, which uh, is really good at the original location. There's a second one that. It didn't. It didn't. It didn't travel. You know what I mean? It's just not as good at the other one. And that's a that. Yeah. That is a big problem with Duff's too, because Duff's is, has all these locations now, but they're franchises, and not every one is as good as the non-franchise Duff location. Some of the franchises open, and they're like, okay, we're gonna just serve Duff's the way it was made, and they learn and they follow it. And other ones are like, ah, that's too expensive. We're gonna serve cheaper wings and. You know, so I understand that if someone's like, oh, I went to the one in Orchard Park, which is by where the Bills play, and they're like, it was terrible. I'm like, yeah, don't go to that one. You know, that's a that is right. a tourist trap, you know. But then I'll say to them, you yeah. got to go to the original. I'll be like, no, the original sucks, too. And that's why I'm like, wow, why is this happening? Like, yeah. wow, that this has come for Duff's, you know. And there's a million great places to get wings here. Don't get me wrong. And uh, a buddy, of uh, the, there was like, um, you know, how people do these March Madness tournaments are real popular now. You know, everyone has a bracket sure. for everything. And there was a, a chicken wing one that I thought was really, really, really well thought out in terms of who made it and who the seeds were. And a friend of mine, we're going to all of them. But um, and we have good wings every time, just about, you know, but I still think that Duff's is the king. Um, and yeah. and there's many, many people here are like, nope, tourist trap. And it's an interesting phenomenon to me. Have you seen this in other yeah. food? iconic food places is this, is this oh, inevitable sure. to happen I mean, this I is think, inevitable to happen right well i think i think the bigger thing here that i've learned writing about food for a long time and and also in some ways being a new yorker who moved to new orleans where things are a little bit different but but here let me just say that the overarching thing is that uh, i've learned and i've come to accept that um, a big part of taste what we think of as just taste it has to do with um, the story you're telling yourself about the food that you're eating. Um, and you see that all over the place, whether it's, you know, oh, this is, um, you know, uh, uh, it's part of the whole sort of hipster artisanal thing. It's part of, um, um, you know, local and seasonal. It's part of um, the, you know, when you're discovering a play, this whole fetish for discovering an unknown, you know, chicken place in South Buffalo that, you know, no one else has found yet. Um, and when the story turns, the product might be exactly the same, but, um, but legitimately you're, you know, someone plants that seed in your head and it's, it's, and, and, and it just doesn't taste the same to you anymore. Um, and I think, you know, that food, I mean, that, that's one thing. And, and part of the big story of 
of the food revolution has been, like I say, sort of this this urge to discover something new, and and it's a, it's a very like old impulse to be like, oh, too many people go there. I mean, it's like indie rock or anything, you know. Oh, it, that was better before everybody loved it, or I was there first. Right. Yeah. Everyone loves the, the first uh, three Green Day albums, but everything after that, shit. Right. Like, kind of that. Yeah. Thing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody pulls up the drawbridge as soon as they got the dumps, you know. Um, one of the interesting things, one of the things I love about New Orleans is that a phenomenon certainly here to some extent, but not nearly as much as it is elsewhere in the country. Like, for instance, you know, there are tourist restaurants here, quote unquote, Commander's Palace, um, Galatoire's, um, even Mother's Po'boy's, which is not the best po'boy in town, but it's the one everybody knows. Um, that if they were in New York, no one would ever go there. And I guess probably New York State as a whole, frankly, the way you're just telling me about Duff. Um, because by virtue of the fact that, you know, everybody in the country knew about it and that's where tourists went, there's no, they would just be disqualified as being cool in any way, shape, or form. Right. And New Orleans is a place where that isn't this really quite the same. It's, it's um, that mortal fear of being seen as a tourist or a rube or a, you know, heck, just doesn't exist here. And you get, a place like Commander's Palace that is both truly a tourist restaurant and uh, filled with locals and great because of it. Um, so I think that, that but yes, I, I, I think, I think that trap can be avoided, but I think it's extremely common. It's much more common that people pull that, that you know, that you see the dynamic that you're describing than the other way around, which is that a place can somehow manage to be both, you know, as a good example is like um, really good example is um the pizza places in new haven if you've sure. ever been down oh to, yeah my brother uh, went know, to yeah. Sal- yeah, Sally my brother and frank to pepe yeah yeah you know like mm-hmm. those and there's always like oh no frank pepe's the tourist place oh no sally's is the tourist place you know but but actually both are in my experience it's been many years you know um they were all amazing to me both of me they're both amazing yeah, yeah. and you know and and gone to by the people who, are, who live there you know but that's what it sounds like you're talking about to some extent yeah um I was in New Orleans, so you know I'm a huge Saints fan, and uh, for my whole life, I'm a huge, huge Saints fan, and, you know, I had this crappy 2020, and, you know, I knew it was getting towards the end of Breeze's tenure, so I'm like, you know what, it wasn't last season, but the season before, I'm like, I'm going to go to a game this year, been a few years anyway, let's do, so I'm just going to go by myself, you know, make it easier with our daughter, and I'm just going to, you know, leave on Saturday, come back on Monday, or whatever, Mm -hmm. and, uh, (laughs) And, uh, of course, Breeze was injured. It's like one of his – I think he missed three NFL – three games in his tenure with New Orleans up to that point because he got injured last year too. But up to that point, he had missed three games because of injury in the Superdome, and that was one of them. So um, – but I did get to meet him on the field. Anyway, besides the point. So I'm like, all right, I want to have re- – like the Saturday night for dinner, I want to have like really good fried chicken, and I want to like find it – I, I want to avoid – a tourist trap or, you know, I want to find a cool place. So I'm Googling and I'm looking at Yelp and looking at all these lists. I'm just trying. So I decided on a place called Coop's place. It was on uh-huh, De- De- yeah. Decatur street. And I don't know. No, I know it well. Yeah. I don't know if it was one or the other, but I do know it was amazing. Like every single mm-hmm. thing I had, and I had like seven different things was really, really, really good. But everything else yeah. about the place was really, really, really bad. Like the way they tre- the way they treated me, where I sat. Oh, they're assholes. Yeah, I mean yeah. everything else about the place 
was miserable. I mean, they, it was the worst, the worst service. They were the worst. They were the worst people I met in the whole city. You know, that, like I, they actually sat me like in this like strange kind of corner seat of the bar where the waitresses the whole time were walking by me to get like drinks and stuff, which was fine. I was by myself. It was no big deal. I didn't need a great, great spot. But like when they like when they come over to see if I needed a drink or anything, they're like, they like, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm here for the Saints game. They're like, yeah, great. You know, like they, they they hated me. They didn't want me there. They didn't make me feel welcome. But the food was amazing. I yeah. don't know. It doesn't seem like you think so. You know, I haven't been. Uh, no, I mean, Coops has been is is one of those places that uh, um, people absolutely love, and lots of people I trust are absolutely love. I have never enjoyed it that much. Um, I've I've always thought it was fine. Um, I don't. I've never thought the food outweighed the attitude. And, um, and you know, usually there's a, there's, there's a line out on the, on the and sidewalk there, and it's not a place I'm going to wait online for. And there was, um, yeah. but and, I don't, I don't think you did as bad. I think like, you know, um, I think it's entirely, um, you did fine. Next time you call me, like, yeah, I know I screwed up. You I know will, what? And I will give you my list and, uh, and you will, um, you know, don't, don't, don't come and tell me that you Fended for yourself in New Orleans. I know. Um, Here's the thing. I decided on like to bully you into eating <laughs> other things. I decided on a Wednesday that I was going on Saturday. Like when I got back, I'm like, oh, I should have reached out to Brett. No, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. You know, like I didn't think the trip out well at all. It was a blur. I decided, you That's know, fine. you know, I'm going to this, and I went, and you know, it was a, it was a, it was yeah. a very impulsive like clicking on Expedia next thing you know I have a trip to New Orleans booked and my wife is looking at me like wait when are you going you d- you know like, <laughs> you did what but um I think the whole food thing too that I was and the reason I sent you the um the uh the sauce is because another thing we're sensitive about here is everyone's like oh chicken wings and beef on whack and both of those are amazing and probably my two favorite things. But I think the case I was making to you is that if we were an NCAA bracket of our different foods here, that we our seven seeds are really strong. You know, our eight seeds are really strong. Um, I gotta get you here sometime and just show you like all the food. I know we've talked about yeah. it each time, and I can't. And you know, and I've been meaning to um, make a bit of priority to get there. My parents. Did I tell you this last time? My parents spent. Um, a bunch of time. My parents uh, retired and travel around the country, and, and every place they go, it's the best. But they went <laughs> to Buffalo and Toronto. They loved Buffalo so much. They went to Toronto, turned around after two days of a seven day trip, and like came back to Buffalo to spend an extra five days. Oh, and they, I and that. like food was a big part of it. Yeah, they, I believe they that. They loved it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I I need to get myself up there at some point or another. But I because I have no idea what the lower seeds of that. Uh, you know, I guess I know the wings, the the. Um, the beef on whack and then the juvets. That's my, that's basically it. Right. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to, I got to do it at, at some point. And I want to come in the winter cause I miss, I miss winter badly. Um, and this last year was the first time I didn't see snow, you know, in my entire life. So, um, I'll get up there someday. The sportscaster are here with Brett Martin. He writes some amazing articles for GQ and one of my favorite books in the history of the sportscasters book club, difficult men. How much time do I have? Because we're already burned through a half an hour. Do I have at least 15 more minutes? Yeah, 15 more minutes. Okay. Uh, let's uh, transition that into TV a little bit because I love Difficult Men because I love The Sopranos. And I, I actually have in my hand the amazing, I guess you call it a coffee table book. 
um, that you worked on that I pull out every time I'm in the middle of a rewatch, which is pretty much always. So this thing's always wow. se- seemingly laying around. You know, I'm, I, I I think I'm done with Sopranos rewatches. I just watch it whenever I feel like watching it. You know, it's it's in it's in order, but you know, with HBO Max now, you don't have to pull out the DVDs anymore. I know that's been for a while, but it's like they keep my place for me. You know what I mean? So if I if I watch yeah. it for two weeks and I get through a season and a half, and then I take a maybe a week off or a month off to watch The Wire for a little while or Deadwood or you know whatever The Americans, some other show, because I seem to I finally get a new one in and then I love it and then it gets in the rotation and it makes it harder to get another new one in, but. Um, this book is always out, and I love it. And the other day, recently, it was an anniversary, I guess, of the finale of The Sopranos. And I've been listening to The Sopranos podcast with um, Christopher Moltisanti and uh, Bacala um, and, kind of enjoy- mm-hmm. and kind of enjoying that. And I guess the question I have for you about maybe Sopranos, about Difficult Men in general, there's a, a lot of space in between now, the time that this book came out, which I think was, what, 13, 14, somewhere in there? 13. Yeah, well, I think 13. Yeah, yeah 2013. What do you think, if you were to, if, if the publisher came up to you and said, like, let's put out a new edition and, you know, put let's get some new content. Like, where would you go with it? Like, how do you think, how do you think the thesis of the, of the book has held up? And if you were to write more, like, what would you want to write about? Would there be new difficult men? Would it be about the mm-hmm. legacy of the men? Would it be about how, you know, like, where do you think you'd go? Um, that's a very good question. Um, nobody is asking for that. So it was the first. Well, they should <laughs> be. They make. should be. And, and then, well, the other point is that I, um, I didn't, um, I, I've said this before and it's always part of why I, you know, I, I'm, it takes me a while to control me on. I, I haven't, I haven't watched professionally, which by which I mean, not only that I haven't been writing about TV, but I also haven't been watching with an eye the same sort of attention that I did then, you know, basically since the book came out, you know, there was a real sure. easy sort of chapter end for me, um, you know, right about it, just the way things worked out. And one of the reasons I think the book kind of resonated was that it, it came out right, um, right as that first wave was ending. Right. I guess I, I Mad Men was still on Breaking Bad was still on, but they were sort of in their final, um, Yep. It felt like they were they were starting to um uh wind up and then and then of course the big thing that was happening was that the phenomenon I was describing that allowed this all to happen was um was leaving T V altogether to and migrating over to Netflix and to Hulu and to um um you know, Apple or whatever it is. So, you know, and, and, and what's been interesting to me is that even though it seems different, it's been gratifying to, to see that, um, essentially what I predicted in the book, which is that this would, that it would keep moving, that one, one entity or another was going to have to bank on quality, on prestige, on creativity, on new voices, in order to try to build a, a market in this crazy, in this world of infinite choice, you know? Sure. Um, and I, and I do think you see that, that that's what happened. It moved over to these various places. Now I didn't watch a lot of shows to be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, the, um, if you, if you watch 
I am not. I have always been in awe of people who can sustain that level of consumption for for like a sapping wild type or something. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, and and I've never even been a rewatcher. Like, I just don't have the. Yeah, I I happen to have. I happen to have children around the same time. Yeah, that sucked up most of my um, my viewing time. Baseball is you know 162 nights a year. Yeah, pretty drama. You know, and I go to and I go to bed at 10 o'clock. So, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I've never been a binger and I've never been a, much of a rewatcher. So, um, so that's that. And, and honestly, my standards went up enormously after that. So I, I really tend to give, to give, um, stuff because in part, because I have so little time, what feels like so little time, I, I, if I'm not in within a couple of episodes, I drop it, you know? Um, yep. You know, I think HBO has been is gone, right? I mean, like like the level of it seems to me that like, um, you know, the the whatever just as a casual watcher like that brand has disappeared. Well, Game Even of Thrones get an occasion. Game of Game of Thrones yeah, is kind of they've been really good at the short limited series. Like they had two amazing ones this year, um, uh, and they had the Chernobyl one, one was time? last year. So this year they had um, oh what. The, well, the last Hacks one is what everybody loves. Last one was Mayor of Easttown, which was a, incredible. Yeah, I need to watch that. That was incredible. Yeah, I need to watch that. Great. Okay. And then, like earlier in the year, they had one with um, Nicole Kidman and uh, who's the guy oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that L- was Little Things, Pretty Little Things. No, it was with was? with yeah. um, who's the guy who was married to Elizabeth Hurley but got picked up with hookers and then was on Jay Leno and it changed. Oh, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, yes. Uh, It was called um, The Something. The Undoing. That was great, too. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I miss, like, this is, I I mean, I will say the phenomenon is that two different things. So let me withdraw that about HBO. What's fascinating is that I don't know where that stuff was. You're not totally wrong. a million things about Mayor of Easttown. Yeah. Uh, Mayor of Easttown, you know, my Twitter feed was full of it. It's on my list. And when I sat down to, when my partner and I sit down to watch it, we will have to speak it into my Apple TV because I have absolutely no clue what channel that's on. And, <laughs> not, you know, and, and that's the case. Right. And that, that's a huge deal for these places that, um, for whom branding was everything, right? I guess yeah. I'm sure that is having a major, you know, I mean, one of the major arguments of my book is that was, that was the purpose of, that's what allowed this flowering of, of great work to happen is with HBO and then, and then AMC, and then um, FX is, um, and these, all these different places. Existential need to um, to be a brand, well, and the sheer like amount of product out there that is undifferentiated. Depending, you know, whether it's Apple, whether it's Netflix, whether it's Hulu, whether it's HBO, you know, is is probably a real problem for those people. Um, the new thing. So that would be something that's interesting to me. Yeah. The new thing is that you know everyone has an OTT service, so it's creating content for that. You know the over the top. You know the online. So like right. HBO's brand now is HBO Max. You know what I mean? So they're not as worried that you but don't know the, the channel. That's the equivalent of getting you to pay for HBO in the first place. You know, sure. As a premium. Yep. As a premium, which was what was happening in 1999. What they did know, when the came out is. What they did with Mayor, right. though, which was different, is they didn't put them out all at once. They yeah. put them out weekly, and I think it really helped that show build momentum. So I didn't know about it at all until the, there was five on. 
So like yeah. my wife and I, we watched well, the first it's, it's five, good... and then we had two weeks of waiting. You know, two different times, and we liked it. Yeah, you know, we we talked about it all that. week. Yeah, I can sense that. Um, in, in again, sort of just as a viewer, I mean, maybe it's an interesting perspective, even though I I know nothing about the show. It's an interesting perspective to sort of watch the chatter about it, and it's a completely different thing to relive that feeling of anticipation. You could tell leading up to the finale that people, you know, we're going to watch together and we're going to, we're going to talk about it that night. And we're going to, yeah. you know, I had to stay off of Twitter the next morning. That's, I fear that, um, that horse is out of the barn or however, whatever the expression is. And that people are just more people are, have gotten so accustomed to getting it dropped and, you know, having total, total freedom as to when to watch something. Um, but, um, and that that won't um, you won't see a huge amount of that, but I do think it's something that we've lost. You know that the the um, the communal part of, um, of of waiting to see an hour a week is is gone because so many people that I know at least say that they're going to wait till the end and watch it all at once. And I just don't. That's not the way I've ever watched TV. It made it made writing a book about this actually really difficult because um, I don't have the capacity. Never had the capacity to watch three episodes in a row, four episodes in a row, which is, you know, how everybody watches now. My thing has been, I'm kind of done with season ones. I've been heartbroken too much that I usually wait for at least a commitment from a season two before I, that's amazing. Yeah. You know, before I, I no matter, you know, no matter what I hear about a show, I'm like, no, I want to make sure it's a season two, but, uh, my, 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 um, legacy of, of difficult manner uh, how it lives in my life is I'm always looking for them no matter what I watch, you know, like when the Americans came out or when I, well, it was out, but when I started watching it, I mean, that's a, again, another one. I was four seasons before I even knew about it, but you know, I was like, wow, Philip and Elizabeth Jennings, they're the, they're the next round of difficult men, you know, like the, the legacy lives mm-hmm. on here. They are, you know, the, this, this amazing family that, that are spies and they go out and they kill people for the, for the cause, for the, for the country, you know, for, for the cause and, and for Russia, mother Russia. And, but then they go home and they go to hockey practice and, you know, it's very, yeah. and it's one of my favorite shows. I mean, way up there, but, um, you know, yeah. or, or even when I was watching mayor, it's like mayor, she's one, you know, like mayor, she's this, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I don't know, but that's, yeah, that's for me what I'm it glad. is. I, you know, I mean, I think, I think that the moment, <clears throat> and rightly so, you know, um, there was in the immediate aftermath of that, when the book came out, you know, everybody was, was, um, rightly thinking, well, <clears throat> enough with the men already, you know, like, uh, you know, this obsession with this particular kind of masculine, flawed masculinity, but, the bigger point was always what, you know, that, that they were human portraits of flawed characters, of antiheroes, of, you know. And I think, even though it may not have felt like, and certainly the other side of that, which is the tyrannical, um, autocratic showrunner and boss is very out of fashion at the moment, and rightly so. You know, I mean, that's become a huge, like, you know, issue where, I mean, there, there, there's... Um, you couldn't you couldn't act like that in a writer's room anymore, um, but I think actually those shows wound up in some ways they were critiques of because they were also critiques of manhood and of 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 terrible men of difficult men. Um, 
they were actually a lot more prescient than than they may have felt at the time. You know, I think they anticipated me too. I think they anticipated sort of this moment and 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 the fact that like we got through the period of everybody doing the exact same thing, just trying to recapture the Sopranos now into this new area of where it's just a given that there's going to be these complicated characters is is probably a pretty cool thing. You know, it's so funny that you said about the writers rooms too because. The last episode of Bacala and Moltisanti's show had Matt Weiner on, and uh, he was. Oh, did they? Yeah, and it's it's a that's been the, maybe the best interview they've had. David Chase was good, but this was yeah. maybe better. But uh, he was he said he's like I had the job for a month and I almost got fired, and they're like, oh no, what happened? And he's like, I was talking too much. He's like, David doesn't uh-huh. like talking in the writers' room, you know. Like, I don't know, is there, maybe this is stuff you would know because you were so deep with the show, but. I thought he gave out a lot. A couple times, like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be talking about this. You know, I don't know. To me, it felt really good. It's worth looking up. But uh, we're not going to. Oh, he's a smart guy to talk to. Yeah. Oh, he was amazing. He was great. Like, oh, my God. Uh, But we're not going to get to Larry David today. He's going to be on the cutting room floor. Although I will say to the listeners, if you just Google, you know, Brett Martin GQ and you find the archive of his stories back in January of 2020, he wrote an incredible one on Larry David called The Incredibly Happily Life of Larry David, TV's Favorite Grouch. So I highly recommend that. Yes. Um, read I'll that. I that I wind up, wearing, wind up wearing Larry's pants. That's the only thing I'll say. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's great. Uh, a friend of mine named uh, Blake J. Harris, who wrote the amazing book Console Wars, um, and also wrote a book about virtual reality. And then the Console Wars documentary is now out. Uh, he's writing a book about Larry David that's coming out next year, maybe. I'm not sure. But um, so oh, the, cool. Uh, but I will. I, uh, let's end on this because I know you're a fan. What the F do the Mets do about the Grom? You just got to shut him down right now, right? Like, what do you do? Like, what? I don't know. I, you have Sandy Koufax. You know. And he keeps coming yeah. out of every game after two innings, and then they're like, "He's fine." I know, but then he keeps coming back, and then so he, keep, he comes he, back, and then are, he comes out he, again. Yeah, and it's a different thing. That's what's scary, you know. Or you know, I, uh, I mean, I don't know what to say. Yesterday was the weirdest day, right? How do you, how are you hurt, and then you strike out eight of the first nine, and then have kind of sorted. I mean, the, the best interpretation is he—they're actually—he's being extremely cautious with himself, and. And the, all these things are precautionary, and we'll see what the imaging says, and you know, and you, you keep going. But I mean, what are you going to shut down if there's nothing there? And and he's and he's in his prime. I, I really don't know. I well, mean, then you got to send him to a shrink. Then I guess. Yeah. I mean, well, how- oh, do you or do you just take what's there? Like, what you indulge in? I mean, what you know? I mean, they won the game. Um, I I really don't know. I feel like there's the two interpretations are the Mets are training staff, and there's certainly plenty of, of evidence for this, right? That the Mets have been too casual with in- injuries in the past. Um, but the fact that they are treating each little, this is the most optimistic interpretation. The fact that they're treating every little thing as cause for at least taking him out and, and, and getting a scan done. Maybe they're taking. Maybe they are treating him well, and maybe 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 it'll be okay. I, I don't know. Well, um, here's the but thing. it is hair raising. I love pitchers because I was a brave. Like the, when growing up in Buffalo, the only team I could watch every day was the Braves on TBS. So I became a Braves mm-hmm. fan because I could watch them every day, and baseball is an everyday thing to me. Um, 
and and they had these amazing players and pitchers and I love Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz so I love pitchers in general you know I'm a huge Barry Zito fan um I love a ton of pitchers and I love DeGrom he's amazing um and I look at the AL East or the NL East and it's like the Braves are horrible they're the best horrible team maybe I've ever seen they're so good but so bad consecutively you know, just like they're just ruined by a bullpen, which happens to a lot of Major League Baseball teams. And their starting pitching isn't as good yeah. as it should be either. You know, and then and they, they seem to be cursed because every player is just injured. You know, they, the only guys that can stay healthy are, so far, Freeman and uh, Acuna, but they'll be hurt too soon. Um, but the Mets are, you know, seven and a half up on them. The Phillies are no good. You know, the Nationals seem to have won their championship and now are just like, all right, we're good. You know, and the Marlins are stink. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's it's like, wow, like they have a chance to have a special year. You know, the new owner, you know, Lindor really hasn't even gotten going yet. You know, I don't know. They could be. A no, sc- they've been doing it with. I mean, talk about injuries. Yeah. I mean, the, the they Mets, could be a scary the team. Starting lineup was out for the first, you know, for, for a period there. And that's where they went on their run. And now people are coming back. It's um, it is scary. And, and like Walker and Stroman have been amazing, too, which helps. You know, mm-hmm. so it, I feel like being, I'm not that concerned. I mean, well, what's your point? You said that, that, that they got to, you got to make sure the ground's going to be there of, for the, for the, for the, for the, for the, yeah. for the payoff. Right. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to, I guess you don't, I'm just saying like, I'd be so careful. And I know that's kind of your point too. We're almost kind of making the same point is like, Oh, the just being so careful. But I would, I would maybe say like, just take a month. I don't know. Just wait till the All Star. I'm saying that, that. Yeah, I guess I'm saying maybe this is the look of careful when it's not a recurring thing and you're and and, they, and they're doing you know they're where where it's you know these are three different injuries these last things or three different problems but an elbow a shoulder and a <laughs> and I've just so, never seen that you know, um, I've never seen a guy he comes in he starts it's like yeah it's Degrom day you know it's awesome everyone wherever he's pitching they bought the take they go see Degrom and it's like three innings he's got. Somehow there's only been nine outs, but he has eleven strikeouts already. You know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> and um, and and then he's out of the game, and you're like, oh no! And you know, I look on Twitter, and um, Rose's daughter is, you know, has a video up already, and she's like crying in hysterics because of the injury. And then I read the next day on Twitter, it's like he's fine. And five days later he's comes, back, yeah. and and this happens again, and then. Again, it's like how many times, and I'm I'm just like, wow, this is just. I, it, the beginning of the year, it was like how many starts in a row can Degrom pitch, eight and two thirds scoreless innings, and the Mets lose one nothing. That narrative has ended, and yeah. now it's how many starts in a row can Degrom pitch three innings, strike out fourteen, and leave with a random injury that isn't an injury apparently. And the Mets win. I and mean, the their Mets bullpen won it last yesterday. Yeah, and the Mets yeah. win. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Thankfully, it's not my. There's a wonderful thing about things that I, I have no authority over. All right. You know? Well, <laughs> I know that. So I'm happy, but I, I, I do hope for the best. Brett Martin is at. And let me just say this one sure. more thing. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. One more thing before, just to go back. You got to get out. Have you, have you had Al Michaels on? You know what? I had Al Michaels scheduled thanks to John Wertheim, uh-huh. who, who wrote his book with him. Yeah. And I was sitting in this chair I'm sitting in now, getting ready to call him in 15 minutes. And his publicist said, Oh, Al decided to go play golf. And I said, well, he's Al Michaels. Uh, I understand. So I've not had him yet, but I, I'll get there. Well, the reason I say is yeah. because you need to talk about vegetables with Al Michaels. Oh, no. Never, 
apparently, apparently never, he claims, never eaten a vegetable. Oh, good for him. Good for him. (laughs) Horrible food. You'll you'll love it. You're you're made for each other. Uh, At Brett with two T's, Martin. I'm amazed that you are the at Brett Martin. I don't know why. I just figured someone else would have sniped it on you. But you are the at. Brett with two T's Martin I on am, Twitter. Martin. Yeah, and uh, you yeah. can, like I said, find his work on GQ. They make it easy to read them all. And I read a bunch this morning, and I'm always keeping up anyway. I'm my guy here who has ended his hiatus, and we even have a deal in place for his return next year. I'm just going to have to eat some kind of strange thing that I don't even know what. That, I mean, the meat is bad enough at Burger King. God knows what this thing is, but I, I will do it for your return next year. All right. All right. Send me photo- photographic evidence. I will send the proof. I will vi- I will film it at First Eve Bites, Good. like a review. It will be the start of my Excellent. YouTube channel. Because um, my daughter's... You won't, even, you won't even tell the difference. My daughter is not impressed by my podcasting because she loves YouTubers. She just wants to know why I'm not a YouTuber. So and I'm like, but look at baby. I was in Sports Illustrated. And she's just like, well, but YouTube. So maybe I'll, that'll be my start. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I, I love this. See, this was fun. You had nothing to talk about. We did 50 minutes. We never stopped. It was great. No? I, I guess so. I, you know, apparently I have thoughts. This is the show. You know, I see you get too <laughs> hung up on like, well, I don't have anything. It's like I just talked. This is it. This is the show. All right. All right. This Thank you. All right. I Happy appreciate to be you. here. All, All right. right. Be well. Take All care right. of yourself. I'd like to thank Brett Martin and John Wertheim for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this show and all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud feed. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters there. Email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Also on the Sportscasters feed is my other podcast, the 24-inch podcast with myself, Dave Rollins and Paula Bennett. It's at the number two, the number four inch podcast on Twitter. Uh, Search for the 24 inch podcast on Facebook to join our group. Email us the 24 inch podcast at gmail.com. Number two, number four inch podcast at gmail.com. We do it every other week and you can find it the same place you find the sportscaster. So it's nice and easy for you. And uh, I recently heard from a first time sportscasters listener uh, who is a normal um, 24-inch podcaster listener. So I want to give a shout-out to him. He's at Lucas, A-L-H-O-U-N, 30. Oh, I bet it's Lucas Calhoun, 30, on Twitter. So nice talking to you, Lucas. Thanks for checking out the show. I appreciate that and hope we did a good enough job to keep you listening to some more of them. Don't forget about my friend Peter Winson. Greetings from Allentown. That's Twitter is at GF Allentown Pod. Uh, new episode every Thursday. Also, usually on the weekend, there's a new episode of the uh, show with Keithy. Greetings from Allentown Live. The newest Greetings from Allentown is a 
My favorite one he does is when he does 1984 WWF. He does an All-American from the summertime. And I'm so fascinated with 84, and I want to do more with 84 on the 24-inch podcast too, but that's a great one to check out uh, on Peter's feed. So just wanted to mention those things. 24-inch podcast, sportscasters, greetings from Allentown, greetings from Allentown Live. Can't go wrong with any of those. All right. So instead of one last thing today, I've been doing something new. Um, And since I did such a, I guess, emotional and heartfelt one last thing last time, I thought I might as well take a break from that today. Um, And something I, I started a few podcasts ago. So... It was mentioned in the article, and I'll mention it again, uh, that Frank DeFord is is one of the guests I'm most proud of. Frank DeFord is, of course, at the center of cystic fibrosis research and awareness in this country. He very famously wrote a book that he talked about on my show, chronicling the life of his daughter, who tragically passed away, of cystic fibrosis, and it's something that's close to my heart, uh, as I have an uncle who passed away from it when he was eight years old, long before I was born. Um, something that's been very traumatic in the history of my family. I know my grandmother and my grandfather before he passed away, and my dad and his brother and sister, they still have the scars of losing their brother at such a young age to such a terrible disease. When I used to coach hockey schools in the summer, I once had a kid with cystic fibrosis in my group, an unbelievably talented kid who will never... Uh, quite reach his potential because of the limitations of cystic fibrosis. This weekend, uh, another famous sports figure, Boomer Esiason, who sort of took the baton from Frank DeFord and has been the public face of cystic fibrosis for a long time, and his son Gunner, uh, who has defied the odds, still alive today, was married this weekend, um, is going to have a child, his wife is due, which I guess is is difficult and a good friend of the podcast uh, Jennifer Smith and her son Ethan are dealing with these challenges all the time and her son Ethan is uh, a badass kid and she's a badass mother um, and I wanted to give them a shout out too but I know I know that voice anywhere is a compilation of Frank DeFord's favorite NPR commentaries he would go on NPR in the morning show And he'd give these little essays every day, and he did it for years on NPR, and he put out a book of a collection of them. And occasionally, instead of one last thing, in honor of Frank DeFord and his appearance on the podcast, we will read uh, one of those from the book. And today, I pick one out called Play a Four, F-O-R-E. It's from 1995, and I play it in honor of the U.S. Open and the French Open, which uh, have both recently been played as this you'll find out why so this is the words of frank deford these are the differences between golfers and tennis players golfers actually love to brag about how much time and effort they must commit merely to get to the course me and chuck got up at 3 30 just to be able to get to pinecrest at 4 30 to sign up for a 10 o'clock tea time we didn't get home till four Tennis players, in contrast, boast how easy it is to play quickly. I skipped lunch yesterday so Holly and I could squeeze in two sets. We were back at two for the budget session. 
Professional golf is played by middle-aged men and old men. Professional tennis is played by young men and adolescents and girls. Golf fans are unbelievably positive. They cheer every shot, even when they can't see where the drive is going. Their instinct is to cheer. Ooh, ah, you the man. Tennis fans assume that every break of the serve is a choke. Nobody ever wins. It's just who chokes the most. Greg Norman couldn't have lasted five minutes in tennis. Golfers are consumers. Tennis players are skin flints. Golfers study golf magazines, which are the size of encyclopedias, and every month pick out a new $1,000 kryptonite irons and helium balls. Tennis players skim over the rare advertisements in their slim tennis magazines and then go play with their trusty 27-year-old racket, which has at least five more good years in it. Golfers remember and discuss every shot they ever made. On 16, I took a 7 when I should have used a 6, so I found the trap and... Tennis players think in the aggregate. My backhand sucks. Golfers absolutely believe in golf balls. They talk as if these balls have independent control over them. If a golfer hits a bad shot, he always says that the ball, not his shot, but the ball found the rough. Golf balls somehow always find bad places to go on their own. Tennis players say, hey, who brought the balls? Golf journalists want desperately to themselves to play on the course where the pros are playing. Tennis journalists want to find out who the pros are sleeping with. Golfers who hit long are exciting. Tennis players who hit hard are boring. Peace Sampras was born to be a golfer. Golfers look good in golf clothes, so as long as they carry a club, tennis players manage to look bad in tennis clothes because they stick the extra balls in their pockets or underwear and look all lumpy. Basically, people who play golf so they can bet during a round and drink afterward, afterward, while people play tennis so they can tell you they're in better shape than all the people who play golf. The great Frank DeFord. So, with all that said, 3-0 Italy so far at the Euro 2020. They're going to play Austria on Saturday. Let's keep the good times rolling in that tournament. Happy birthday again to Paula Bennett, and congratulations on your graduation. Don't forget to check out the 24-inch podcast. We have an episode coming out about the time that Hulk Hogan wrestled on primetime television during sweeps in 1988. So that's a really good episode. I want to thank everyone, John Wertheim, for being on the show today. I want to thank Brett Martin for being back on the show today. I want to thank all the listeners, Jim Armstrong and uh, Lucas, for checking us out. Appreciate you.